The only way I can describe what happens next is the Arctic Sea in winter was probably warmer than the reception that we got. And there was just a stone wall of silence after one question. Okay, so there's a few formalities. They ask this one question. Um, how many verified customers have you got? So CEO goes through the numbers and went through the numbers and they just turned around and said, no, you don't. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'll be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest, Tony Fish. Tony, are you ready to rock? I am, Andrew. Very. Yes. Well, I'm going to introduce you to the audience. Tony thrives in complex, groundbreaking, and uncertain environments, bringing proven judgment and decision-making skills with cross-sectional experience. He has a track record of sense-making and foresight with an enthusiasm and drive that truly are contagious. Tony is definitely a maverick and an unintentional rule breaker. His focus is on how the future of corporate governance, decision-making, and judgment will be affected by complex data at the corporate board level. This focus leads him to speak about what board meetings are going to look like in 2025 and the implications and most importantly, the unintended consequences. Tony has founded, co-founded, sold, and listed many businesses and remains deeply passionate about the new ways of creating value, inspiring, and supporting the next generation of thinkers and doers. Tony, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Andrew, that's, I don't know where you've, you've stolen that from, but I absolutely love it. Thank you. The only tidbit which I find most people are quite shocked at is I left school with no qualifications. So I'm severely dyslexic, slightly autistic, and probably on the Asperger scale, which doesn't really reflect well in your LinkedIn profile, but that's the reality of who I am. So I've actually never had a job. I've never been the paid employee. I've always gone off, built things, and gone through that process. It's interesting because when I was recently, I met someone, I asked her, what, what do you do? And she says, well, I help attention, you know, hyperactive and attention deficit disorder kids. And I said, well, I pretty much was that, you know, they got me on drugs at a young age and all that stuff when I was, you know, pretty young. And, and I've always really my whole life have been jumping from one thing to another. And she said something that really kind of shocked me. She said, you know, I really feel sorry for these kids. No way. And I said, I said, hold on, wait a minute. First of all, you're calling a kid who can't sit still in a classroom and listen to a boring ass lecture. You're calling them abnormal. You know, I'd say the other 99% of the kids who are just mindlessly sitting there listening are the ones that have a problem. Number one, number two, my attention deficit disorder or whatever you want to call it has given me the ability to hyper-focus. It's given me the ability to really jump into things and add value. And I've dealt with it not by trying to get rid of it, but by making the most of it and also hiring people around me that have those skills that I don't have. And you know, that's the reality of life. Each of us are given different skills and the mix of people in a company is what really brings out the best of everybody. So that was my response, which was a little bit surprising for her, but you know, any, any thoughts about from your side of that, what are those, you know, 
How does that I'll, manifest I'll, I'll, itself? I was going to say, Andrew, podcast over. You, you've done it. That that was the best answer ever. And, you know, what, what more investment advice do you need? You summed it all up. Happy days. We're, we're sorted. Yes. Oh, man. And I, always, I say it's the best gift my parents gave me. What would you say is like the, the thing that you derive from that, that, that maybe somebody that doesn't have that type of behavior or that type of you know, what they call disorder, but who doesn't have this type of thing, you know, what can you do or what can you see? So one of the, one of the remits that a board has is to sense what the market's telling you. So you have two principal things. What is, what is my team telling me? And you've got to sense that. And then you've got to sense what the market's telling you. And then you've got to derive there's a gap. And if the gap is the right gap, the wrong gap, or there's no gap and you're doing the right thing and the market is telling you what the company's telling you. And that's what you're always searching for. And so many people who are not hyperthinkers and outside and able to, to embrace wide concepts just perceive that the market is actually just saying exactly what the company's saying. And therein lies so many difficulties, they don't see the gap. And yeah, totally agree. By having a wider focus and jumping from place to place, what you're able to start to pick up is actually the market isn't telling me what I believed the company was supposed to be doing, and therefore we have a problem. And while I might be able to raise what the problems are, I might not be the best person to actually solve the problems and totally agree with you. You can go and find the right person to solve that particular problem. Build great teams. Mm, yeah. And one other thing I want to ask you about boards before we get into the question the is, question. yeah, the, uh, you know, my, one of my businesses in Thailand, my best friend, Dale runs, he's the managing director and we're equal shareholders in it, but I do not work for the company. It's called Coffee Works, our B2B coffee roasting business. And basically in that business, when I look at Dale, you know, he is full of positive energy and I just think growth, growth, growth. He is a typical CAO who's confident, who's positive, who's overly positive. If you could imagine, we're not a publicly listed company, but if you went to an event, you'd say, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to take over the world. And I'm sitting in the background going, yeah, well, you know, and then of course, when I think about my role, my role is a little bit more like, let's say chairman versus CEO. And what I think about is risk. And so over time, what I've kind of come up with the model in my head is like Dale's growth, Dale's CEO, CEO's growth board is risk. If the board focuses too much on growth, then they don't do their job of risk. And it's not really, a, yes, the CEO must focus a bit on risk, but if they spend all their time focusing on risk, they'd never get growth. I'm just curious, like the relationship between the board and the CEO, what is the healthy relationship there? Oh, that is a question which is so big. It is just enormous. I actually write an awful lot on the complex relationships at board. And you're spot on to start to point it out that actually the shareholder board relationship is different to the board executive relationship, which is different to the board ecosystem relationship, which is different to the board regulator relationship, which is different to the board customer relationship. And if you look at accountability and responsibility, the only place accountability and responsibility sits often isn't where you actually perceive it is. Because actually between shareholders and, and, and board, there isn't a joint way of relationship for accountability and responsibility, neither to the executive team. Nor, and unless you start to understand how you as an individual play in those relationships, 
it's tremendously difficult to start to unpack what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so many people don't understand risk. And one thing we'll come to probably in, in the story as well, and why I focus so heavily on it, boards cannot grasp in so many instances that data produces new risk. And this isn't data going, oh, look, we could have a leak, we can have a hack. That's, that's well understood risk. This is data gives you insights that you don't like because you want to bury it, because you want to hide it. And suddenly you've got new exposed risks, which are real and in your face, which you can't hide from, but boards don't know how to deal with it. And they don't, quite often, they want to question the data to actually preserve their own opinion to avoid taking the risk. And so how do you get these stories up into the conversation that the data itself is highlighting risks that you have kind of like wanted to ignore and actually you no longer can. Fascinating. Fascinating. And one other thing is for those listeners out there that are board members or aspire to be board members or, you know, are involved with boards, what would be your advice about how to be a good board member? This may sound incredibly contrary every piece of advice you will get from anybody way too many people perceive the board is the reward at the end of your working career so you work your way up the structure you get to being a ceo from ceo you go onto the board and then you remain on boards and you become this portfolio board person the issue with that as a fundamental principle is that you've operated a business which is great and you can fulfill one of the obligations of a, of a governance which is, is the person who's got their hand on the tiller and is the vessel I'm in fit for purpose? What those roles don't give you through all corporate careers is, have I got the right purpose? And is the North Star the right place? And am I heading in the right direction? And secondly, can I be a better ancestor, which is management of risk? And therefore, most people turn up at boards with this great operating experience, which is so narrow they're unable to do what a board. So being on a board, actually, you need to be a philosopher. You need to be an anthropologist. You need to be a psychologist. You need to you need every skill which corporates don't give you. And we've got an abundance of people who are great strategists and great finance people. But kind of like that's not what the board is for. And it is not a reward structure. So if you want to perceive you want to be on a board, go do something else for all of your life because you will be a much more valuable board member. If you mm. want to get to the top of the tree, aim to be the chief exec, but do not assume that will make you a good board member. The skills you need for a board are completely different to those to get to the loneliest job in the world, which is the CEO's job. <laughs> I'm just picturing a CEO starting at the bottom of a ship shoveling coal into the engine and the ship's cranking and everybody's working hard. And this CEO's great at organizing all of these people to crank this ship and move it. And I'm picturing the board member at the top of the ship kind of looking 360. What are all the opportunities and threats? And, you know, it's a totally different situation compared to cranking it out down in the coal room where they're cranking the coal and keeping that engine going, you know, and, and I'll use the analogy one further, which is then what you've got is to feed the people on the ship is somebody casting the net over the back and dragging it along the coral reefs as a ground. And therefore, what you're doing is burning the earth behind you. 
because there's no food for the next person in the next ship. Because what we've done is to feed our ship, which was really, really cheap and easy and looked like zero risk to us, actually has risked every other generation. Mm. And that person, they got to have 360 and look back and go, why is there no ships behind us? <laughs> but we don't. We look forward to the North Star, forgetting that actually we've burnt the earth behind us. And hence, more risks that are coming to the fore right now, which we have to address and deal with. And these are the issues that lots of chief execs then don't want to deal with because they don't believe it's part of their remit. They get to the board and they suddenly realize, oh, this is a, it's a lot different to how I thought it was going to be. Mm. It's uh, another thing I think about when I first moved to Thailand almost 30 years ago, I remember going up country and I saw a, a farmer throw away a piece of, you know, a wrapper, a plastic wrapper or something like that in his field. And I had seen people throwing away stuff, you know, on the streets in Bangkok. And I just realized like for the average farmer or the average person that's living in an isolated environment, throwing one little thing away doesn't have a lot of impact. But when all of those people converge into a city or into a business or whatever. And then all of a sudden you have everybody doing that. Now you've got a whole new <laughs> challenge for society. Yep. <sighs> well, we've got some interesting dilemmas ahead. Exactly. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. We'll do, Andrew. And first of all, I'm going to say, Thank you for the invite, which is, and what it's actually done is opened my eyes up to your own podcast, which I'm completely unaware of. And I've listened to a load of the stories and I've absolutely loved them. So if, again, if anyone's reading and listening to this, go back and listen to some of the other stuff. They're absolutely amazing. And you are as a host, fantastic. So thank you. Thank you very much. Everything I say now is going to sound quite generic and I'm not going to use names and I'm not going to identify companies because this particular story is quite different and quite difficult compared to a number of the other ones that you've, you've seen. I learned a lot in this experience, and I'll come at the end to say what I continue to hold from, from that experience. And the joy of listening to your, your, your back catalogue was so many of your speakers reflect on exactly the same. The worst and the toughest times, you learn the most. And there is no doubt that actually you go into your worst investment to learn more. So actually, if you say, do you want to learn more? Go make a stack of bad investments because you're going to learn really, really, really quickly. Not probably the best psychology, but there you go. So the, the story starts by we had a really simple concept, really, really simple idea, which was to deliver a product to 3 million captive market in the UK market. Those customers already had fairly much adopted the product and service but they were particularly price sensitive and therefore all of the existing players because of their large infrastructures could not really offer the price with the performance to this market in a way that they wouldn't they wouldn't carry on being incredibly loyal so if you started from scratch with a wholly different philosophy and different economics you could get price efficiency day one and that's what we set off to do with the recognition there was a there was a market we wanted to create something which was highly efficient highly effective and and built from the ground up we identified a power player and what i meant by a power player was it was a company who had access to our market and not only did they have access they had utter control over the digital channels to this market and what we did is we 
we basically did a cross shareholding with them to get a deal which gave us not exclusive because they couldn't do exclusive deals and we didn't want exclusive deals, but we gave access to that market in terms you could not get in other, any other way, which was very clever. And then by a few calls to a number of, of key players, we were able to get a superior product with a subscription model, which we could now offer to this captive audience. We raised Series A, which was just short of 10 million pounds, which was then really to cash flow growth. So the, the, from the concept to actually getting Series A up and running was about four months, okay? Because we knew what we were doing. That's we'd fast. Come, yeah, we'd all come from experience. And when you looked at what we were going to do, it was pretty flipping obvious it was going to work. So why would you not get the backing? Because the customers already knew the product. So we were basically, you know, swapping existing customers from one platform to another platform with a, with a much better cost advantage. As usual in this period, it was chaos. It was mayhem. It was incredibly great fun. We had a great team. We made a load of mistakes on the way. One of them was ordering 200,000 boxes for our product, which turned out to be unfortunately slightly the wrong size <laughs> and somebody made a spelling mistake but you know and you know they're probably still sitting in a warehouse somewhere but, you know it was classic you know so much energy so much focus and dynamism and you you do a few interesting things the branding we created was so beautiful it was so simple it was clean it was elegant the market absolutely loved the branding and basically the growth was better than planned so within, as soon as we got to market and launched, we were almost ahead of plan from day one. Now that's just, you know, stupid. It was, it was, this is not, not right. All the normal scale issues were with us, but we had a great team and we had great tech and we, you just worked through them day on day on day on day. You just swept through all of the processes and problems. So that was no particular issue. The deal we cut with the supplier for the product and subscription was favorable to supplier because basically we didn't have proof of number of volumes and they knew we would come back at some point. By this point, we now had a significant customer base. We'd scaled past six-figure subscribers in less than six months and each of the subscribers was roughly paying about £20 per month, give or take a bit. And we, you know, after just less than the six-month period, we were just past £5 million a month in income. And this was from a standings nine, nine months earlier. We needed to raise more capital to basically cash flow the business. We knew we had to therefore go back to the supplier and get better terms before we were going to get more capital because the terms we had would not go to large scale and therefore we needed to renegotiate. The point we've committed now about 20 million in debt and equity. The energy was, was super high. The thinking was turning to actually the major supplier would look to buy the business themselves because basically we were now already in a six-month period the go-to place for this particular market. We weren't taking customers away from them. We were actually building a substantial new customer base, which actually with their new platform, they would be able to offer something they hadn't done before. So it was a pretty obvious strategic exit. So what we did is we set up a, a meeting with them and we went down to see them and there was a few of us. So I went as, as chair of the board and we took one of the other major shareholders who had ponied up a lot of the funding who also knew the industry very well and the CEO. And the three of us went down to hold 
a session with the supplier to basically renegotiate terms. Just to cover off some of the team, we found the CFO on a recommendation because the supplier wanted the CFO to come from the industry. And so they had made a number of recommendations, which we willingly accepted because they actually knew the person anyway. The COO was a mate of the CEO and they'd worked together before. And fairly much as the board, we knew each other and a number of the shareholders we all knew because they kind of like we'd all been in different deals in, in various terms. So we went into this meeting with our expectation. There's twofold on the agenda. The first one, better deal because that's going to work. And here's our numbers. Off we go. Second one is let's open up the conversation. Why not become either a strategic funder or look at putting in an option that you'd like to take the business out when we pass a certain number? My investment thesis, so the number of these stories have come together and we'll get to the meeting in a minute. So then my investment philosophy has at that point emerged over best part of 15 years, now best part of 30 years. And number one was team, team, team. And that was, you know, the old antage and, and that's what you do. And you find recommended leaders and you find those recommended leaders who can deliver. There's a basis that you kind of like know they're going to deliver. Okay, and you verify that they can deliver, therefore trust builds. They come to you with a plan. You provide delegated authority for them to deliver their plan. And you basically use verify that they're doing the right thing through diligence, through questions and, and cross checking. And I pride myself on not assuming anything and therefore always opening question and always remaining incredibly open minded. So here we are. We're going into this room, which is a which is their main boardroom, and it's a big boardroom, and we're full of hope, and you know, and, and believing the power has shifted from them to us because we've now got stack load of data to show that you know we've got real customers. So it's now in our favour, and we've got the proof. We're in the room. The only way I can describe what happens next is the Arctic Sea in winter was probably warmer than the reception that we got. And there was just a stone wall of silence after one question. Okay, so there's a few formalities. They ask this one question. Um, how many verified customers have you got? So CEO goes through the numbers and went through the numbers and they just turned around and said, no, you don't. And hence the Arctic Seas level was like above our heads because we're sitting there going, what the hell? So we both present facts and figures and we spend a bit of time trying, trying to thaw, thaw the iceberg that's just flown into the room. And it's completely obvious. It is so obvious to a high school student that the gap between the data we have and the data they have is enormous. And we're sitting there going, what the hell? How, how can there be such a gap between the two perceptions? And effectively, what happened next is the unraveling. Back to you, the title of your own podcast, The Worst Investment Ever. So over the next three days, we find out the CEO has been lying. And not That's only sorry, lying. The CEO of your company or of yeah, that. Okay, got it. Of our company has been lying and lying to the board. And not only lying, has been utterly fabricating the numbers. Completely made up numbers. And, and not only that, we had a massive fraud issue. And all of it was hidden. The CEO was also about to jump ship and had found another job. The CFO was having a relationship that the CEO was using to control them and force them to hide figures. 
The COO was actually a mate, as we said, but had a completely hidden past. And that hidden past was not good and was not qualified to be doing the role. The senior team, the rest of the senior team, absolutely lived in fear. And I mean, deep, deep fear to the level you don't want to know fear. And the board was completely misled with data, facts, figures, and it was complete madness. We didn't have 200,000 wrong boxes of the wrong size with the wrong spelling mistake. We had utter fraud. There was no 200,000 boxes. It was just how to lose money. We didn't need more outsourced IT, which had been funding because basically they were just siphoning off funds. And the systems that we believed were in place and working actually turned out to be a user interface and a user experience and calls to a database, which were completely fabricated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the joy of this is I can see Andrew on video and yeah. he can look back at me. You've only got voice. And he's nodding and he's going, I'm about to see his, his hands and his head and going, how can this be? How can this be? So what did I learn? I learned if somebody wants to lie, man, and they want to create a sophisticated fraud, it is incredibly difficult as a director to get close enough to see the truth. Mm. It is so difficult. You can ask all the right questions. You can take the data from the system, which is what we were doing. But if that is utterly fabricated, how do you know that the data in the system is fabricated? You know, what is the What's the feedback mechanism? And you would expect, you know, whistleblower staff and everything else. But remember, this is all happening in lightning quick speed. Mm. You know, this is, this is not years and years and years. This is months of this all turning around. So it's kind of why I've specialized and focused hugely on the governance issue since, because we thought we were doing governance. And I was really naive because actually what we were doing was trying to use reporting, reports, CEO reports, CFO reports, and compliance. And all of that stuff is just not sufficient to know if what is actually being presented to you is, is complete fabrication. And there's, you need a whole different makeup of the way boards work and governance. And those board papers just pretty useless unless you can actually determine the provenance and lineage of the data itself. Mm. The another piece of learning was, and this one always surprises me, that I didn't realize the limited liability is the company has limited liability and shareholders have limited liability. Directors, as a director, you are 100% liable. There's no escaping. So mm. as directors, we were liable. There was nobody else in line apart from the directors. Yes, you can have DNO insurance and everything else, but DNO insurance is all about are you capable, credible? And when there becomes lies and fraud over a period of time, there's a serious question, were you therefore capable? So it's a whole different bundle of things that people suddenly start to wake up to is the reality of sitting on the board of a company is not a kind of where we went earlier, a nice little end of life career. It's actually a serious role, which has serious implications. And DNO insurance only covers a certain number of things, which actually you don't really need it for because you're going to, probably going to do a good enough job to make sure they happen. I learned most definitely that most people have this idea about structures and boards and reporting. And honestly, it's made up wishful thinking. And they have this perception of what they're going to do and have a glass of wine and a cigar and chat around and have a nice meal. And it just is, that's not, that's not the reality. Mm. I learned, therefore, to how to look for signs 
And this is an emotional maturity piece, which so often doesn't get built into people as they go through um, structures. So emotional maturity of control, bribery, corruption, and manipulation. And you need completely different sets of ears and eyes and noses and fingers and everything to start to understand what that looks like and where nervousness is not nervousness, which is very different and how people, how people can actually go to acting school to learn to act. And you want actors because when you're selling something, you want that act. But actually when that act is being used internally on you and you can't determine it, it's a whole different ball game. I'm not a person who's risk adverse from all this experience even, mm. but I do now have that highest emotional sense. I'm not more judgment or judgmental or controlling because of the experience, but I do seek diversity of reporting. Mm. And one of those questions I go back and I, I beat myself up on it. Why did, when we wrote the contract to the supplier, it was a one-way stream. They wanted information from us, but we never asked for reports, which says, can you confirm back to us? The numbers are the same. Really simple. And actually, if we'd asked for that, none of this probably would have happened. And it's, it's so many times I've heard these on your stories. Yep. If you'd done one thing, yep. it would have been different. And that piece of learning always asks you that question of what should I be asking from a third party to make sure that actually I have a much fuller picture, your sense of the environment and what's going on. I really don't believe reports from systems anymore. And unless I can actually really get to grips with the systems and actually get to the detail. And my engineering past does come in really handy at some points to being able to dead pass and just see that some things are just a user interface. And spreadsheets on the side are a complete travesty. I now look at people and I ask them face to face and I say, are you lying? Because <laughs> great question. And it's amazing how people actually don't expect that question and they change. They squirm. And they squirm. And one of the interesting ones is actually, you know, here we are in COVID-19 and we've all moved to, to video and Zoom and everything else. And I really worry that in Zoom and in, in digital world, we don't have that sense of chemistry with the person we're asking. I can't see if they're sweating. Yeah. I can't see if they're uneven. And some of the real telltale signs you get of sitting in a room with somebody who's like, we've lost. And what worry, does worry me enormously is you have no idea how to check what is being fabricated and told you. Mm. So hence the reason I don't name the companies or any of the individuals. It was a, um, yes, the worst investment ever because reality is we were lied to. Well, it sounds like worst investment ever, yet it set you on a path for the rest of your life, investigating, thinking about, and, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like it shaped who you are today. So that's pretty fascinating. I mean, uh, there's a few things I take away from it. The first one is, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be involved in a company, be an advisor, not a board member. Because <laughs> <laughs> a board member, I know in Thailand here, a few years ago, the government tightened up the regulations. And so as a board member, if, you, if there's fraud going, inside, going on inside the company and you can't prove that you did some efforts to try to detect it, then there's nothing, you know, you are liable. And so, yeah, there is a lot more risk for a board member these days. The, the other thing that's interesting, and it reminds me as, a, as an analyst valuing companies around the world all my career, one of the toughest things that you've got as an analyst is that you know, you'd know you say, this company's great and I've got a buy recommendation. I've met the management, I've seen the company. And then some news comes out, some rumors come out. 
And it's really hard as an analyst to know, is this real? Is this someone just bad mounting them? Is this, you know, something's just going to pass or is this real fraud? And as an analyst, that is probably one of the toughest things because it's hard to abandon your baby that you think these guys are great and whatever. And it's one of the reasons why I do something called Uncovered Asia, where I talk about companies that aren't covered by investment banks and the like in Asia. And I like to just publish that on my LinkedIn and my Facebook and then see, and I get fantastic feedback from people about, you know, oh, wait a minute, this company, somebody attached a video that was like 10 years old, five years old of, of a company's CEO or CFO kicking an analyst out of a company meeting. And they attached the video that they had kept for five years after having watched, witnessed this. And I was like, wow, that's the power of crowdsourcing. And I think the main takeaway from that is that, and this kind of goes back to that idea of being on top of a ship and looking 360 degrees, a board member really the value is going to come from, you know, picking up stuff outside of the organization. And that brings me to one other thing that I just tell a, a quick story about how my business partner and I, when we set up Coffee Works, you know, we, we passion, passion for quality, passion for great coffee. And, you know, we never had customer complaints. And I mean, in the rare case that we did, we immediately switch out any product. But we were just, you know, Dale in particular was a great roaster and he just understood what the customer needed. And then we got a customer that said, we're going to do a quality audit of your business. And we thought, well, that's no problem. And then what we found out is they said, no, after they did their quality audit, they said, well, in fact, you failed. And we were like, what? And then what we learned was that, you know, in the world of ISO and the world of all of this structure, they said, look, you don't have the paperwork in place. You don't have the, the documentation in place. And we learned that, you know, documentation and paperwork for them was a key part of quality. It wasn't about, you know, that taste in the cup. It was about, did you do all the paperwork? And so, you know, we, we had to adopt that paperwork and we see there's some value in it, but I'd much rather be a company where the owners value quality and then have to add some paperwork into it compared to a, a company that they don't really care about quality and they built it all around paperwork. And it just reminds me that, you know, there's all kinds of companies out there that have ISO and all these certifications and verifications. But the truth is, is that you can have all of that and still have bad quality, fraud or whatever else. So it's something that just reminds me that, you know, something that you said is that a good lawyer, liar or fraudster can do it ultimately. I mean, you, you can't not avoid the fact that there are some people that are going to create an elaborate structure to lie, cheat, steal, or produce bad quality. Those are the things I take away. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, I don't want to add to it. I think that it's just a different piece of thinking because I think what you said was superb. And it goes back to a question you asked earlier, which is the relationship between the board and directors, because the board are directors, and the shareholders and the executive team and others. And it's that issue that the directors are accountable and responsible to the shareholders. But the shareholders have a dependency. There's no actual contract for relationship. There's a dependency on those directors doing their jobs. And there's, there's no enforcement because that's the, the limited liability piece. The directors to the executive team. Now, obviously, some directors are the executive team in, in some instances. But the directors have a dependency on the executive team where the executive team are accountable to the directors. And then you go to the customer's piece, which is where 
the customers themselves have an absolute dependency on the board doing the right thing, i.e. quality, yet there's a responsibility in law that you don't kill your customers. And I totally agree. This is where this, this quasi-relationship between rules and purpose really comes to the fore, that too many people focus on the rules and therefore the compliance to the rules, i.e. let's make sure I don't kill my customers, but forget the dependency I have is actually I need to make the best coffee. And because so many boards don't understand these relationships, and then you add in the ecosystem and the regulator, there's a whole series of complex, fluid relationships which keep changing. And too many boards think there's stability in those relationships. And it's part of your role is to understand where those relationships are today, where they've gone and where they're going to. And we don't spend enough time on that. We spend way too much time ticking the box going, yes, CFO's report's okay, CEO report's good. Oh, we've got all our compliance in place, let's go. And it's like, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a deep problem. Mm. So based upon on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there is one. I wish there was and I would mark it up and I'd write a book on it and make a fortune. I think the bigger issue right now, which I would draw to anyone's attention, is that if we're using video as part of our board meeting processes, which I don't know anybody who's not, how do you know? And this is the, the it's such a serious question that most people don't want to even consider it. And because you don't consider it, I totally agree what Singapore's done. You actually, are under any duty of care, are now liable. So you've got to find additional ways to know that what you're being told is a truth. And that is actually tremendously difficult because we're all now remote. And therefore, actually, it's, I have to say it, but it's a field day for liars and manipulators. Mm. Well, all right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I'm working on a piece, which is how do we do board meetings in 2025? And this is central to the piece of thinking that if we are going to go forward as a digital, which would fairly much, I'm pretty convinced we are going to, how do we solve that problem? And that's where I'm both thinking, I'm playing with technologies, I'm looking at all sorts of very clever monitoring things that we can put on people. And people might not like it, but just imagine we put a blood oxygen level on you, we put heart rate, we put breathing, and actually they're monitored during the board meeting as vital signs. And people go, but that's just like weird. And I'm going, yeah, but when your ass is on the line and you're liable and you have that mechanism available and you haven't used it and you're standing in front of the judge, mate, you have no defense. So there is an interesting quandary. Now, do we dump the data straight after the meeting? Do we send it off for analysis? How? So there's a whole new piece that's coming to the fore, which we've got to start thinking about and engaging with. And that's, you know, totally fascinating. And I think the, you know, the idea is that the human mind in, in human interaction is pretty good at detecting things. But when you start putting layers of distance, the human mind just isn't familiar with that. I mean, I always often think when I walk around and I see everybody's got a face mask, I think about, you know, how does this impact society? How does this impact the connectiveness that you feel between people around you when you cannot see them smile. You know, you can see their eyes, but that the smile is a real signal in 
society, whether that's an animal society or whether that is a human society. And how does that impact? And, and I, I also think, man, I'd hate to be a young guy trying to meet women when all of our faces are up under, are covered up because all the social cues are just all messed up. So, <laughs> and, and, that, and that has to go for any relationship between any two humans. You know, it's, it's, it's not just male, human, male, male, female, it's, it's male, male, lady, lady. Yeah. Any, and the reality is this, that if I don't want to show you my eyes, actually I can downgrade my video quality quite easily on a click. So mm. I go to zoom, I go up to the top corner and I go take it off HD and go to, and actually I can limit my bandwidth, right. which means zoom will automatically down and all you'll end up with is blockiness. Mm. So you know, who's using what as technologies to actually, or, and you, you've seen this already, oh, I live in a remote village yeah. and my bandwidth is really poor and I'm sorry, I've got to come off video, I can only use audio. Now, everyone goes, ah, oh, that's fine. I'm sitting there going, is that a red light? Mm. Should I know more? Actually, how do I get broadband to that person to make sure actually I really can see them? Yeah. How do I know they're not sweating when they're, and I know it sounds really sad, but we had it when we had togetherness in a boardroom, we were all connected. We had a belonging. Yep. We've lost, as you said, those layers of distance have, have killed belonging, connectedness and togetherness. Well, and we're making the most of it with this podcast. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Tony, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave ones because when I ask most people, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So congratulations, you've now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? None, I just keep listening, exactly what Andrew says, keep listening to the rest of his backlog. They're just genius, love them. Thank you, Andrew. You're very welcome. And yes, the backlog of all kinds of the, the catalog of people that have talked about different things, so many things that I've learned and that you can learn. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well. Fellow risk takers, this is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, saying I'll see you on the upside.